1: speaking today with Dr. Audrey Claire Marley. She's the author of the book, The Unfit Heiress, The Tragic Life and Scandalous Sterilization of Ann Cooper Hewitt. But more recently, she wrote an excellent article in the Religion and Politics website called The Eugenics Roots of Evangelical Family Values. And I was really excited to talk to you, Audrey, because it was all about Dr. James Dobson and this connection with eugenics. I'd never heard of it. So thanks for dropping into Mindshift Podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: As we were talking about before we hit record, you said when you started researching this, I guess it was for your book. Maybe we can talk a little bit about your book as well. But what's the connection, just generally speaking, because you said most people had never heard that Dr. James Dobson, a focus on the family, had anything to do with eugenics.
0: Mm-hmm. So when people think of eugenics, they often think of forced sterilization, mm-hmm. which was popular in the first few decades of the 20th century in the U.S., And that kind of eugenics is what's called negative eugenics. It was about preventing the unfit or the undesirable from reproducing. And as that sterilization became less popular in the United States, a lot of eugenicists shape-shifted into what's called positive eugenics. Positive eugenics is about getting fit or desirable people to reproduce. So namely, able-bodied, middle-class whites. And there's one particular eugenicist named Paul Popineau, who was a Californian and really helped to expand sterilization laws there. And he was one of these figures who just rebranded himself once eugenics began to fall out of favor. And uh, James Dobson came to work for Popineau at his institute in Los Angeles and trained under him. And the argument that I make in my essay is that his whole family values program grew out of the secular ideology of eugenics.
1: So I was doing some research on Popino today and I mean, my God, this guy, <laughs> <laughs> what a piece of work he was. What can you tell us about Paul Popano? Mm-hmm.
0: Other than
1: what you've already mentioned.
0: Yes. So uh, he's famous for expanding the sterilization laws in California. And he was an editor of a journal called the Journal of Heredity, which promoted eugenics practices. But he also corresponded with uh, leaders in other states who were reluctant to exercise their eugenics laws. So he would say, oh, it's really no big deal. It's just as easy as pulling a tooth. And uh, he also corresponded with German officials And it was actually Popenoe's work, both his writing and his outreach, that helped to give rise to the Nuremberg Laws in Germany, Mm -hmm. which selected certain children for sterilization and also forbade marriage between Jews and non-Jews. And um, some of the uh, early leaders of the Third Reich in the 1930s thanked Popeno for his work and for giving them the blueprints to execute what would become the, the Holocaust.
1: Mm-hmm. So there's a very, very dark legacy to Popeno's work, isn't there? So the, yes. the Germans pick it up. I was talking with Jared Yates Sexton the other day. He wrote the book American Rule. I don't know if you've read it, but part of it is kind of a challenging of the received American myth of you know sort of American exceptionalism and everything else. And he says, we need to realize that It was the Germans who picked up eugenics from the American scientists, you know, in air quotes, scientists. It's sort of a a pseudoscience in a way. Where did eugenics Mm -hmm. even come from in the first place? Because Popeno didn't invent it, did he?
0: Right. So it was actually conceived by an English intellectual and cousin of Charles Darwin. Mm -hmm. The man's name was Sir Francis Galton. And he had conceived of positive eugenics, which I explained earlier. He came from a noble family and he was annoyed that families like his had to support people who were impoverished in these criminal classes. And so he thought if more people from you know my milieu would reproduce then these problems like criminality and poverty which he thought to be inherited traits just like blue eyes or brown hair then those those would be eradicated And in the US, it's um, several decades later, at the beginning of the 20th century, that eugenics really gains popularity. And there's a few reasons for that. Mainly, the racial demographics of the country are changing. So African-Americans have begun to mass migrate from the South to the North. Immigrants are pouring in in record numbers. And people began to become very fearful for the future of the white race. And so they're interested in eugenics, but they decide to focus more on the negative side of things. So curbing the reproduction of people that they perceive to be unfit. So if you were disabled, if you were poor, if you were a woman and you were thought to be promiscuous, those were the people that were targeted by uh, sterilization laws. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't just sterilization. It was also immigration restrictions. It was these anti-miscegenation laws, which uh, forbade marriage between African-Americans and whites. Um, so there there were a lot of tentacles of the movement.
1: How much of this goes back to colonization, the colonial era in the 18th and 19th century? Because I've been going through Barbara Tuckman's book, The Proud Tower, which is fascinating. It's kind of, she picks up this era from about 1890 to 1914, right before the start of World War I. And the section I'm on now, she talks about during the colonial era of all these superpowers in Europe and that belief system that there were sort of just superior races and then inferior races. And that's just mm-hmm. the way it was. That's just the way kind of God had designed everything. And it was mm-hmm. your right as a superior race to take these other colonies over. So Africa, mm-hmm. South America, the so-called third world countries, places like India, China, and other places. And that's how they saw it. So it was just baked into the system, mm-hmm. even in the 19th century.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot that's baked into the thinking already in America. Manifest destiny is another mm-hmm. example. Just this idea that a certain race or people has a right, and not just a right, but a duty to conquer and proliferate itself.
1: Yeah, and you see that absolutely. I mean, the colonial era is, it, it's just rife with examples, isn't it? You kind of have this patronizing, patriarchal worldview worldview that sees other races these so-called inferior races we're almost like parents they need to be taught that we we need to feel pity for them feel sorry for Mm -hmm. them really it's not their fault that they're just inferior they're just Mm -hmm. you know and we're bringing the light of civilization and christianity of course that was a big part wasn't it like in the british Mm -hmm. empire the missionaries were coming right alongside the colonizers almost right on their heels bringing the gospel to the dark continent, like Africa, you know, so that's Mm -hmm. just baked into the system, isn't it?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what's interesting about eugenics is that it was bankrolled by the upper classes. So you had figures like um, John D. Rockefeller Jr., who also really promoted Billy Sunday and Mm -hmm. other prominent Christian leaders and um, the Vanderbilts and the Kelloggs, the serial magnates, and these wealthy families just really saw their philanthropy as a responsibility to reshape society. One of the really influential essays of the period, um, The Gospel of Wealth by J.P. Morgan. Mm -hmm. And that whole essay argued basically that it was the richest job to um, use their money responsibly for the benefit of society. And so they saw eugenics as an example of exactly the kind of philanthropy that they were supposed to do, that to use their money to invest in these eugenics programs, these researchers who are going out and doing, you know, taking these shoddy family trees of people in an immigrant neighborhoods, uh, and that that was going to ultimately improve society.
1: I was surprised to hear how much Popino was involved in the sterilization project, like you mm-hmm. were talking about, I came across a really interesting article in um, The New Yorker. I don't know if you came across it from 2010 by Jill Lepore. It's called Mm -hmm. Fixed. She talks about Popeno. And she says that uh, by 1913, he was promoting California's sterilization project. About 20,000 Californians were sterilized by 1913. And Popeno said that we need to sterilize about 10 million more Americans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, so you're going back, because he's he's born like in the 19th century, wasn't he? So he's operating in the early 1910s, 20s, 30s, up into World mm-hmm. War II even, advocating mm-hmm. and actually doing sterilization.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, at one point he argued, and this might've been mentioned in the piece, that upwards of a tenth of the US population needed mm-hmm. to be sterilized in order to fully eradicate defectiveness yeah. but what happened with him and why he was forced to shapeshift is that there emerged a lot of criticism to eugenics and so some scientists began to point out that the science is actually really shoddy mm, and
1: pseudoscience that,
0: yeah exactly and that the, the inheritance of positive and negative traits is a lot more complicated than eugenicists assume. And furthermore, that so-called normal people could be carriers of negative traits, which would mean you might need to you know, sterilize so many people just to eradicate defectiveness. Mm-hmm. And so there's this scientific criticism that's becoming more vocal. But then there's also the rise of the Nazi party in Europe. So, you know, we talked previously, Popeno definitely inspired a lot of figures there. But Americans had a bad taste in their mouth for what was happening in Europe, even in the 1930s. Mm. And so seeing what was happening there, some people began to wonder if it was really wise that we were sterilizing entire classes of people.
1: Mm.
0: And uh, so there was this pressure upon Popeno to uh, find another way to continue this racial betterment movement Mm -hmm.
1: it was more than just um, race racial in terms of let's say people of color or something it Mm -hmm. was also what they call feeble-minded people as well Mm -hmm. they call them like mentally retarded people if if Mm -hmm. we could wipe that out as well it's Mm -hmm. more than just skin color isn't it
0: well i think that the feeble-mindedness was connected to race Mm. so if somebody was promiscuous or thought to be promiscuous she was assumed to be feeble minded and the danger of a woman who was feeble minded or promiscuous was that she was going to be likely to cross the color line and right. that is why feeble minded people became greater targets of eugenics than people with other medical conditions mm-hmm. and then there's also just this sense that physical weakness emasculates the race at a time when immigrants are coming into the the country at a time when African Americans are having a greater role in public life. So I think that the uh, disabled whites became collateral victims of this white supremacy. They were targeted precisely because officials wanted to shore up the white race so that it could better prevail over these inferior races that were having a greater Mm -hmm. presence
1: and you can see it is baked into well, certainly fundamentalist Christianity. I mean, I'm sure we'll get there, but while we're talking, it reminds me of a, a sermon that Bob Jones Sr., who founded Bob Jones University, I don't know if you've come across this, but he preached a sermon, I think it was about 1964. And it was the whole thing was about race mixing. And the mm-hmm. whole topic of his sermon, his argument was, Look, this is how God has created humanity. Basically, stay in your racial lane. Everyone will mm-hmm. be happy, the world will be better. We just need Mm -hmm. to not intermarry. And that's the way God set the whole thing up. And this is Mm -hmm. off the back of the segregation academies and all that. So it is baked into certainly fundamentalist Christianity, isn't it?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with that.
1: Hmm. So now he pivots, as you say, part of it too was off the back of World War II, wasn't it? You got the Nuremberg trials, they are going in and and liberating certain parts of Germany and Poland, stumbling across concentration camps. Oh my God, shocking, literally shocking stuff. Mm -hmm. a A lot of people weren't aware of until really close to the end of the war. So Popeno has to, as you say, he has to pivot, kind of reinvent himself. Suddenly now he's a marriage counselor. Mm -hmm. Really strange pivot, except for this connection, isn't it?
0: Yeah. So one point I want to quickly make is that the sterilizations did persist. Mm. Um, They happened more in private practice rather than in these state asylums. And by having them happen in private practice, they were there was no centralized record keeping. And so it became very common practice in the South, for instance, with African American women. The term Mississippi appendectomy emerged to describe um, if a woman had an abdominal procedure and she came home without a uterus. That became so common um, in places like that, but there was no record keeping. So, you know, we don't really know how many forced sterilizations took place after World War II. So that's mm. one thing, is that the, the sterilizations have started to happen in private practice. And then the other is this positive eugenics, which, you know, Popino really invigorated through marriage counseling. So he just, I believe in, uh, it was the late 20s or early 30s, opens this institute called the American Institute of Family Relations. And the express goal of this institute is to remove what he perceived to be obstacles to white reproduction. So pornography, rape, feminist yearnings. In other words, if a woman wanted to go to college or have a job, that was a barrier to her having babies. Mm -hmm. And he had these compatibility tests that he would use with couples. A lot of those tests were crafted by the exact same people who had crafted intelligence tests only a few decades ago to Mm -hmm. weed out the feeble-minded and select them for sterilization. And so um, his goal here is to keep white couples together so that they have more children and that they can then outbreed these inferior races.
1: I read read about it in The Great Gatsby. It even gets a mention there, doesn't it? This idea mm. that if we're not careful, the white race is going to get submerged. You know, it's it's all been proven by science. You know, this mm-hmm. replacement theory. When we come back from the break in this conversation with Dr. Audrey Claire Farley, we are going to get into how Paul and one of the early pioneers of American eugenics. Reinvented himself as the father of modern marriage counseling, and that, as we'll see, is where the connection to Dr. James Dobson comes from and his connection to eugenics, which he has been pretty successful at hiding or obscuring. But this conversation with uh, Audrey is really interesting because I'd never heard of this connection at all before, so I'm really glad that she's done this research, and as she says. Off the back of this article, she's getting some really interesting responses and other people have picked up this thread and they're going to carry it even further. So I'm really interested to see where this thing goes as more research comes out about this connection with Dr. James Dobson and eugenics. I just wanted to mention really quickly that we've got some really fantastic episodes coming up. It's kind of along this same thing, and I think I said before, this is not by design, but this issue of racism, eugenics, and all these things kind of all are interrelated and the Christian church. I had a conversation the other day with Fred Clarkson of the Political Research Associates. He's been on the podcast before. We were talking about an article that he wrote Looking at this guy up in my home state, Washington State, a guy named Matt Shea and his connection to Seven Mountains Dominion Theology and another guy named Tim Taylor and what they're pushing up there in the Pacific Northwest, this idea of seceding from the United States, forming their own state, their own actual discrete state of liberty and the white supremacy piece together with the Christian sort of Dominionist angle. This is, again, a whole new area of research that Fred has uncovered. So look for that episode coming up. Also, I had a really fascinating conversation with David Johnson of the Skeptics and Seekers podcast. We talked about the history of racism and the church, and this is an absolutely unbelievable episode. You are not going to want to miss that one. Super informative, super educational, and quite disturbing in a few places. David really is an expert in this in this subject. In fact, when he was a, a pastor back in his evangelical days, that's what he focused on was racial reconciliation. So he's done a lot of speaking and research on this topic. He's an absolute wealth of information. Fascinating conversation with David Johnson. And then I also had a chat with Daniel Phelps. He's a survivor of the World Revival Church out of Kansas City, which is really a destructive cult. And so that episode is coming up as well talking about warning people about the dangers of this church. And we talk about cult psychology, cult tactics, recovery, a lot of really interesting stuff that came out of that chat with Daniel. And then finally, I've had another conversation with Rachel Bernstein of the indoctrination podcast. We're going to do something really, really cool. Half of this chat is going to go up on her show in a few weeks, and then the other half is going to come out here on Mindshift Podcast, so I will keep you apprised of when those two episodes are about to drop so you can catch the first half on Indoctrination, and then of course the second half will be out here. So that's what's coming up here on the show, some really cool stuff in the pipeline. And then finally, speaking of really cool stuff coming up, on the 27th of this month, the 27th of June, we've got Emily Elizabeth Anderson coming in for our Mindshift Zoom call, We did an episode not long ago talking about Bill Gothard, Josh Duggar, the ATI, the Advanced Training Institute, homeschooling curriculum that Bill Gothard developed, which is really a destructive cult. So I'm really looking forward to having Emily come back and meet the people in our closed Facebook group. That is where you can get access to these calls by being a patron of the show. For links to that, you can go on the show notes and there's the link to the Patreon page and you can become a member of our closed Facebook group get early access to the shows, as well as our patrons-only calls that we have once a month as well on Zoom. So it's a really good, wonderful, supportive community that we're building. A lot of us have left religion behind, and this is part of why we need supportive community to help us recover from the damaging effects of religion. So if you want to be a part of supporting the show and be a part of that community, look again, as I say, in the show notes and find out the link to the Patreon page that we have. All right, let's get on back to the chat with Audrey Claire Farley. As I said, we're going to look at the issue of not only how Paul Popeneau kind of transformed himself into the father of modern marriage counseling, what was it all about, and what was the connection with him and Dr. James Dobson focus on the family, the Family Research Council, so many of these groups in the Christian right, what is it all about? Audrey is going to unpack it all for us as we continue to look at this connection of Dr. James Dobson and the eugenics connection. Going back to that article by Lapore, she talks about that this whole idea of, you know, sterilizing the unfit, urge the fit to marry. So mm-hmm. he says, this is something Popeno wrote, he said, I began to realize that if we were to promote a sound population, we would not only have to get the right kind of people married, but we would have to keep them married. So this mm-hmm. is where Popino's doing is he's talking about this in 1930. You know, he's saying this is where the seeds of this marriage, quote unquote marriage counseling, because he's now suddenly seen as the father of marriage counseling. He's Mr. Mm-hmm. Marriage. He's writing a yes. column. He's on the Art Link letter show. He's completely reinvented mm-hmm. himself.
0: Yes. So he he wrote a column for Ladies' Home Journal which I think was the longest running column of all time and had you know hundreds of thousands of readers. He's making these TV appearances and he has these rules that he advises couples. And of course, one of them is no interracial coupling. Mm-hmm. And in the early days of his institute, he was rather blunt about telling people not to cross the color line. But as his views on race begin to go out of vogue, He would encourage his counselors, and he trained hundreds and hundreds of counselors to do the same work, to not use the word race, but to use a word like compatibility. Mm. And so these clergymen, many Baptist conservative clergymen that were being trained by his institute and then taking what they learned back to their congregations, are using that same very coded language.
1: Mhm. Loaded language, that's what that's what it yes. is. Isn't it?
0: They yes, know exactly. what it means, but right. you have
1: to translate, it, you have to decode it. So where does James Dobson enter into all of this? Mm-hmm. Cuz obviously mm-hmm. he comes into the story at some point. Does he what's mm-hmm. the connection with Popeno and James Dobson?
0: So, after he obtained his degree but before he founded Focus on the Family, mm-hmm. he went to work for Popeno's Institute. He was his assistant director of education. And in that role, he published a lot of articles for the Los Angeles Times, these influential outlets in California, and he would articulate the same ideas that Popino was putting forth. So he would present feminism as this grave danger to civilization. And he would talk about male-female differences in almost verbatim language that Popeno did. Um, He talked about um, child discipline, that sort of thing. And when he leaves the Institute to found focus on the family in 1977, he continues, but he gives everything more of a religious cloak. So he's now trying to, after the fact, make the Bible the basis for these ideas that he's essentially inherited from a secular eugenicist. Mm -hmm. So he also opposes... He opposes interracial marriage, but he says, you know, it's a compatibility issue. It's not a racial issue. Um, He devotes a lot of time, more in the 90s, to talking about unwed mothers in inner cities. So basically, women of color. Mm. So just as Popono had fretted a lot about what he perceived to be this prolific reproduction of the lower classes, um, and in his state of California, he meant Mexican-American women, Dobson begins to fret about this epidemic of black women who are having children out of wedlock and so here too he's being careful not to frame it as a racial issue so he would say well it's not that they're black it's that they're out of wedlock um so he would say it's a moral issue not that Mm -hmm. but what he's essentially doing there there's a lot packed into this move number one he is trying to overlook the uh the racial causes of poverty right he's saying oh well if only you were married you know, that's why you're poor. Mm-hmm. He's also pretending as though uh, women of color constituted the majority of people on welfare, which they didn't and they don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then lastly, he's trying to tout these white Christian norms as the solution to poverty.
1: It's amazing is that once you see the Popino connection, once you make that thread, that it starts to fall into place, doesn't it? Because everything mm-hmm. you're describing, I mean, I grew up as an evangelical listening to focus on the family on the radio. My parents were staunch fundamentalist Christians. We were not allowed to listen to rock and roll music or secular music or anything like that. We could listen to Christian radio. My parents read his books, and he was a towering figure, maybe in some ways still is, in evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing is, it's all pro-family, as you said. But once Mm -hmm. you decode that word, what do they mean when they say family? Are they talking Mm -hmm. about a gay couple or an interracial couple? That ain't in that description of family, is it?
0: Mm -hmm. No. And with a lot of fundamentalists, the opposition to gay and now trans lives um, still has a lot of eugenics tints to it. So um, this is something that Michelle Goldberg talks about, I think, in her book, Kingdom Coming, how after 9-11, you had gay people who were blamed for the attacks. And um, one, I, I can't remember which figure it was, one of the prominent ones, that said that gays were, quote, softening up the nation for Islam. So here again, we have this idea that gay people are going to emasculate us at this time when these dark-skinned people are coming into our country. So I, I absolutely think that the resistance to gay and trans lives is connected to whiteness and, and what people want um, to preserve.
1: Yeah, the traditional family, that's the language, isn't it? We want to, and, mm-hmm. the, and that's a loaded language. Like you were talking about, coded language, loaded language. It doesn't sound offensive to say we support right. we support families. we support Mm -hmm. traditional families but when you drill down into that what they mean is probably white christian evangelical uh non you know racially mixed certainly not same-sex marriage absolutely not no way right not gonna happen yeah Mm
0: -hmm. yeah and dobson still um betrays a lot of anxieties about this Mm -hmm. dark-skinned takeover um one of the statistic or this, the facts that I cite in the piece is that as, early, as late as 2019, he went down to the border at the request of the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. And then he pens this piece afterwards, which um, basically says that these criminal degenerate people are going to overtake our you know, great country if we don't intervene. Uh, so he's very animated still by this fear of, of a takeover. Mm.
1: And there's that language again. I mean, how many times did Trump say things like, these aren't people, they're animals, Mm -hmm. you know, that that kind of language that goes right back to the colonial era. You know, there's, Mm -hmm. there's that inferior. They're not people. They're some sort of subhuman. They're swarming across our border. It goes back to the Jewish propaganda films of the rats running through the city. And we got to exterminate these cockroaches. And we're doing the world a favor by getting Mm -hmm. rid of this inferior subhuman race. I mean, that's all part and parcel of that worldview, isn't it?
0: Yes, I agree. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, it's quite shocking. But then with Dobson, you have the other piece, the political activism. That's the connection where, you know, the stuff I'm studying, the Dominion theology, people like Rush Dooney, Christian Reconstructionism, because it's not enough that he just is an advocate for quote-unquote traditional families, which we know what that means. Now, he's actually got the uh, Family Research Council, and he's He's a political activist trying to actually influence legislation to pass mm-hmm. to support and buttress his worldview.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's the Yeah, great I, part.
0: it is. I think, uh, from what I've read, and I didn't grow up um, in an evangelical home, mm-hmm. although I had some exposure to him, he tried to present himself as apolitical. Am I right about that?
1: Well, I think so at first, because it was all yeah. to strengthen the family. Mm-hmm. But I can remember explicitly as a probably 10, 12, 13 year old kid hearing him on his radio show, focus on the family, urging Christian parents and Christian singles even to call your congressman, call your senator, Mm -hmm. call your state representative. This bill is coming up and if they get this passed, we're all going to be in trouble. That kind of thing. So that was going on back in probably the early 1980s. He was already pushing Mm -hmm. for Christians to get involved in the Mm -hmm. political process.
0: Yes, and Popinot. I think it's important to emphasize the Popinot Dobson connection is probably just one pipeline mm. for the eugenics to evangelical. Popinot also had some connection to other figures like the LaHayes, and um, he was in these anthologies with Billy Graham and these other famous figures. So it wasn't as though Dobson was the only one who was influenced by him. Mm-hmm. Um, And another thread, which, you know, I... May explore, perhaps somebody who's read has explored. People who've read the essay like have already Mm -hmm. like gone down these rabbit holes, uh, which is really exciting. Is a a book that came out in the late '80s, which was a very explicitly eugenicist book. It's called um, "The Birth Dearth," and it's about you know what happens when all these feminists in America are not having children or aborting their babies, and then we're outnumbered by these other peoples, and that book explicitly shaped the political rhetoric Mm. of figures like Dan Quayle, Pat Buchanan, and they would even use that term, birth dearth, in their Mm. campaign speeches. So, you know, I think that the connection between eugenics and the right is bigger than Popinell and Dobson.
1: Got to be. Yeah, it's huge. Well, and how much of it comes across in things like Tucker Carlson? Because there was a story recently, you probably saw that, where he's ranting on about basically some sort of a replacement theory. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I thought, here we go. This is exactly the same kind of talking points, isn't it?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what's so interesting is that he would even use the verbiage replacement theory because Mm -hmm. uh, he made no effort to just lift this term from its eugenics roots. Um, But yeah, essentially, uh, this fear that that these white people are going to be replaced by these third world voters and people.
1: Like you said, that explains the immigration piece, doesn't it? Why guys like Dobson were so pro-Trump, because Mm -hmm. he was strong on immigration. You know, they're just swarming across the border. (laughs) Democrats want an open border. They just want to let anyone come through. And mixed in there, Mm -hmm. there's, you know, gang members and rapists and criminals and animals. Mm -hmm. I mean. You can just hear the language so now it's really got, frightening it is yeah especially as you say when you start making those connections so here's dobson what where's what's he doing now because he's basically retired from focus on the family but he's still mm-hmm. a presence does he, he has his own radio show or his own talk show or something Doesn't he, he still
0: know? has a radio show right um and he occasionally contributes editorials i don't think he's very active on social media mm-hmm. um but I get the impression his book sales are as high as ever
1: as high as ever. yeah, the legacy of a guy like him because you say, okay, here's here's Jerry Falwell I mean going back to what you talked about after 911 you know Jerry Falwell's famous statement, I think it was a couple of days after. And he appeared on the 700 Club alongside Pat Robertson. Mm -hmm. And they asked him, who's to blame for this 9-11 thing? Yeah, his famous statement, you know, the gays, the abortionists, the lesbians, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, the ACLU, the People for the American Way. And I'm going to get an angry letter from them probably tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I've got to tell the truth. God's angry with America. So you got the Christian nationalism piece tied in Mm -hmm. there. It's all one big mess, isn't it?
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: So what is the uh, reaction to your article? Because I read some of the comments Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read some of the trolls that have come after you. One guy said something, Um, your article is steeped in communist rhetoric and it's the real eugenics is abortion, man. That's what the, that's the real problem is. We have to stand up Mm -hmm. against that, you know, so you're getting Uh, some pushback on your article.
0: um, Is that on the site? I haven't seen that. I'll have to go look. Yeah. I was looking at (laughs) it. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Uh
1: oh. (laughs) Look at the comments. Um, You're getting trolled. Yeah.
0: Okay. I'm not surprised. I did hear from a lot of people, but it was reaffirming the Mm. thesis of the piece. A lot of people emailed me to say that their parents were very uh, upfront about um, their needing to reproduce for the purposes of the race. Mm. And um, that kind of surprised me because I was of the impression that these run-of-the-mill evangelicals would interpret the message and the order from Dobson without understanding the logic. And what people were emailing was that that was not so, that a lot of people's parents understood very well why there was an imperative for them to get married and to have children and that sort of thing. So that's been a little surprising for me.
1: You mentioned in your article R.J. Rush Dooney, which we talked about a little bit before, the father of Christian Reconstructionism. What's the connection with the whole Quiverful movement? Because that's another mm-hmm. element to this story, isn't it? Have a huge mm-hmm. family of Christian kids. Why are mm-hmm. they doing all that? What's the connection to what we've been talking about? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, Catherine Joyce wrote a book about the quiverful family. Mm -hmm. And um, what she argues basically is that these ideas of white decline just pervade everyday conversation within these quiverful communities. So that would be another example where people understand that their role is connected to preserving the race.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Just have a huge family. mm -hmm. For for Rush Dooney, his view was, yeah, we need to take dominion over the earth. One way to do that is just simply to have large Christian families eventually we will take over because we'll just Christianize the world, thereby taking dominion. And of course his piece was the homeschooling and and all that, where he's seeing that as the best means by which to take dominion, raise, because it's not enough just to have a huge family, is it they've got to be raised with Mm -hmm. this worldview as well. So then you get Mm -hmm. the indoctrination piece which is another huge concern.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he himself was an avowed racist and he eugenicist. So true, you yeah. know, <laughs> it, it just makes it more, even more observable for the historians.
1: It's true, yeah, full, it comes full circle. It's interesting to read his defense of slavery. That's basically mm-hmm. where you can see uh, things like that. He picks up R.L. Dabney and people in the 19th century saying, Look, I mean, the slaves didn't have it that bad. And actually, it's all justified in the Bible. It is justified mm-hmm. in the Bible. Slavery is condoned in the Bible. What's the problem? You know, if, if America is a Christian nation, we have to be able to somehow justify why God was blessing us, even though we were owning slaves. You know, mm-hmm. so that's kind of the line that they have to go down if they want to preserve that Christian nationalist piece. So, It's a Mm -hmm. fascinating study going. There's another rabbit hole, you know. Yes. How many rabbit holes are you gonna go down? That's the question.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I'm hoping some of my readers will continue to do a lot of the work.
1: Mm. Yes. Well, we definitely need to collaborate some more on this because I can tell we have some you know commonalities in this thing. I'm coming from the Mm -hmm. Rashtuni Dominion Theology, which obviously, as soon as I read your article, I'm like, oh man, I have to talk to her because. We obviously have a connection there. I'm fascinated by hearing this whole piece, which is all new to me, and I think it is new to a lot of people, isn't it? As you say, judging by the comments that you've gotten.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I said before the show I didn't realize that it that Dobson's roots weren't common knowledge to evangelicals, and then I was reading just a lot of you know, different books that have come out in the last year, and nobody was mentioning this. And uh, I believe the reason for that is that he's taken some care to cover his tracks. So for instance, yeah. in his authorized biography, there's no mention of Popeno. And so I thought, well, I've just got to, you know, bring this to light.
1: <laughs> got to be done. Yeah. So if people want to find out more about Popeno, you were saying earlier, in your book, do you spend more time sort of going to, into his backstory?
0: Yes, I do. Um, so the book is about an heiress whose mother had her sterilized to deprive her of the family money. And uh, the case came about right at this moment when eugenics was on life support. It was in California. And Popeno saw that his movement was imperiled. And so he took the opportunity to advise the defense counsel in the case to help them craft an argument so that the public would be convinced that this woman's sterilization was good. Um, so I do get into his background, but specifically mm-hmm. his involvement with the case of Ann Cooper Hewitt.
1: All right. So if you want to find out more about Paul Popineau, mm-hmm. eugenics, forced sterilization, and how that somehow relates to Dobson, go find mm-hmm. your book. Listen, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've learned a lot about this stuff. I'm, I'm really intrigued to go back and read more about Popino And sort of, sort of someone actually sent me on Twitter some articles that Dobson wrote. I hadn't had a chance to read them, like you said, back when he was working for Popino. So now I'm thinking, okay, here's another rabbit trail. We've got to yep. get out of that as well. So thanks yep. for bringing this to light.
0: Thank you. Thank you for talking with me.
1: Yeah. So how can people find you if they want to find out more about your work? I'll put a link to mm-hmm. the article in the show notes if they want to read that excellent piece. Where can mm-hmm. they find you on social media?
0: I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Audrey C. Farley. And my website is AudreyFarley.com.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Audrey. This has been a wonderful conversation. I'm sure we'll speak again. We'll have more to talk about in another conversation.
0: I'm sure we will. Thank you.